Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. I often think that you could probably live a very enriching life just by following the essential messages of some great people, great thinkers. I was at a conference, or I should say a, a uh, outdoor festival yesterday run by the Theosophy Center in Wheaton, Illinois, and I was listening to a talk by Richard Smoley, and Richard Smoley has been a guest on this show before. He really is a scholar in uh, spiritual matters, and he was giving a talk on the historical Jesus, which is a pretty interesting topic in and of itself, but he was asked at the end of his talk, you know, what, what separated Jesus from the other preachers of the day, and what, what he said, what's, what Richard Smoley said was something along the lines of that uh, Jesus' words had a powerful impact upon people, and they've stood the test of time, and I think that is one measure of great people. You know, one of my favorites, of course, is Socrates, and the quote that I always use from him is, the unexamined life is not worth living, which packs a lot of meaning into few words. Another quote that came to mind after I read uh, today's guest's book, uh, the book that uh, I'm referring to is Living an Uncommon Life. The guest is John St. Augustine. I'm, I will introduce him in a second, but the quote that came to mind is from the Indian philosopher Tagore. I'm sure I mispronounced his last name, but it's something like that. His quote is, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. Again, a lot of meaning packed into a small number of words. What does it mean? Well, what it means to me, among other things, is that high thoughts must be followed with action, and that's where true joy uh, arises. So that's one of the topics we're going to be touching upon today. And as I mentioned, uh, the guest today is John St. Augustine, who is a long-running, award-winning, Michigan-based talk show host. Now, he's no longer doing the show in Michigan, but during his time there, as I said, he not only won all sorts of awards for being the, the leading talk show host, but he interviewed a truly unbelievable list of guests, of people, including such people as uh, Dorothy Hamill, Catherine Cryer, Bill Curtis, Walter Payton, Cheryl Richardson, and many, many others, and he really brings a wealth of experience uh, and lessons from his work as a talk show host. He also was the former producer at Harpo Studios uh, here in Chicago for the, for the Oprah and Friend channel on XM Radio. He's written a number of books. The book that uh, I read to prepare for today's show is called Living an Uncommon Life, Essential Lessons from 21 Extraordinary People. And in this book, John uh, mixes together his own reflections upon his experiences 
with these guests, but also the lessons that can be learned from these 21 extraordinary people. John, thanks a lot for, for uh, making time to be on the show. Welcome. Philip, my pleasure. Glad to be with you today. It's a good thing. Very good thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I really, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, I, I really appreciate uh, somebody that's devoted a lot of their life to doing what you've done and what I'm sure you'll probably do in the future, which is acting as a radio talk show host and I could speak from personal experience that it really is an amazing uh, learning experience to speak to so many people from all walks of life uh, it not only uh, you know elevates uh, your your knowledge but it makes you understand that these people are real which which I, okay. which is always encouraging so your book is called uh, living an uncommon life um, what is the uncommon life? Well, the uncommon life, as I have discovered in my uh, 55 years on the planet, is really very common things in disguise. And that, you know, especially in this country, I think because we have it all, and we think that we, uh, we know it all, and they're not the same thing. And so much of what we search for, so much of what we are in uh, quest of, I think, is already within us. It's under our feet. It's in the next room, it's in the palm of our hand, and yet we are uh, urged on more and more to go get the next best, greatest, quickest, fastest thing, and uh, it never really fulfills us, and so we're always in that carrot and stick mode. But the thing, the way that I've learned it, that the most common, commonsensical things, I, you know, on my, on my website it says common sense for uncommon times, the common sense theme or the common sense idea has never gone out of style. The times change. But the things that bring forth the greatest joy, as you were talking about earlier, are things like service and, and uh, you know, finding your way in the world and all those. And, if you, you know, you go to all the seminars in the world, and you can pay up the wazoo for some guru to kind of tell you what you already know. But in the end, when it all gets distilled down, the way you live an uncommon life is do very common things over and over again. You'd be amazed to see what shows up. Yeah, I, th I think that the the message here that I I took away from this is that we we have our own lives to lead, and a lot of people, the way I would put it, they lead somebody else's life, or they lead a life that somebody else wishes they would lead. Whether it's uh, society, their parents, their professors, their employers, or whoever. And it's the people that break away from that, that that would live that would live the uncommon life, which is you know you you quote from Thoreau a lot um, in sure. in your book, and of course that is such an inspiring book, um, Walden Pond. But you know he, you know he had that that line about uh, walking your own path, and it's something I, it's something I think we forget about, frankly. I think I think well, we... you know, I, I agree, and I think that I, I've always, you know, I do quite a lot of talks around. I've actually been very fortunate up to speak in many different places around the world. And you, I always come away with this, this, you know, keen sense that we're all really the same, thirsting and hungering for the same things, just dressed up in different bodies and models and the way we look. And the one common thing that I find more than anything else is that. I really get that we're here to undo what's been done. And what I mean by that is on a lot of levels. On one hand, you know, the generations that have preceded us leave messes for us to clean up, and that's part of why we're here. But on a much more personal note, on our own path, as it reflects to each one of us, 
we're also here to undo what's been done. We have generations of people who have come before us that have a myriad of challenges and a myriad of circumstances and a myriad of, of uh, experiences that all run downhill into us. Yeah. And then, for the most part, we're running on, uh, you know, a hard drive with software from somebody else. Yeah. And some people never, ever, ever either A, take the time, or B, when, the, when it shows up right in front of their face, will reach out and find out who they really are. And for whatever reason, some I understand, some I may never, I found myself in circumstances uh, that I never thought I consciously would be in, but they've given me the opportunity and the chance and sometimes forced me to look at who I am and who I'm not, and what do I, how do I undo what's been done before me so I can you know, help the evolutionary ladder of my family and my lineage along and maybe the people around me. Yeah, the the it was when I was preparing for today's show, and I I continue to think that synchronicity is sort of the law of the universe, and and we'll and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, with luck if we if 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 I remember to bring it up again. But but um, as preparing for today's show, I I was looking at some quotes from Buckminster Fuller, and one of his was something like most of his education has been unlearning things that he's been taught. And, right. and and it's really it's really it really is it really is true because we don't we don't question things and and now, now let's 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 get practical about this for a second because I have my own views on on this very topic and I just sort of alluded to it which is the the this concept of questioning uh, what we've been taught but but it, but in terms of being practical um, somebody that um, you know is is brought up with a with say common beliefs um and and is having problems say following in their fa- in his father's footsteps or something like that mm-hmm. um what kind of tips have you learned that helps that condition well you know i'll, I'll just leap off on that where bucky fuller left off who was just one of the most brilliant minds of uh, the last what 500 years yeah so bucky said something that i think um kind of leads into what your question is so he said that we're making all the right technology for all the wrong reasons yeah and he said that 50 years ago so yeah. whether you would, uh, apply to the, the latest smartphone or or computer everything outside of us or you apply that to yourself saying human technology unless question never changes and so in the reference to someone who look i'm a perfect example my dad was a banker my dad got up every morning at the same time walked to work the same way uh, you know, exactly the same way. He ate one of, you know, five different types of sandwiches during the week, and he had the same breaks for lunch, and he walked home the same way, and when he got home, he was making sure he was in by 6 o'clock so he could watch Star Trek on Tuesday, and that was really the extent, my dad was a great guy, but that was the extent of his consciousness at the time. And so, people much smarter than me have figured out that the way we see the world and who we are in the world is pretty much in place by the time we're 9 or 10 at the very latest. And so as, as you're going along in life, and someone, again, using my dad as an example, whatever got into him when he was between the age of, say, 2 and 10, unconsciously, uh, I've come to understand, has set the form in his path for life. He yeah. may have wanted to do other things. I knew he wanted to be an architect, but he never broke out of that mold that was in front of him that his father's had. So when I came along, I was uh, I, I think that there were things that had twitched in me a little bit earlier that I listened to, that I was able to look at my father and say, not that I need to follow what he's doing, 
but I'm, I'm picking up the emotional pieces that did not work for him. He wasn't a happy guy about working at a bank for 35 years. He would yeah. have rather be doing other things. And the decisions he made were the ones based on his consciousness at the time. But I picked up on that as the last thing I'm going to do is walk to work the same way every day for 35 years. Yeah. And so those, those little nuances, I think, once listened to, we all have those. You know, uh, I haven't, I, last year I did a lot of teaching up in Michigan. As you mentioned, I don't live there anymore. I, I, I haven't done you know, the radio show you mentioned. I started 17 years ago last month, ran for six years. I've done WGN, I've done Oprah Radio, I've done radio all over the country. Thousands and thousands and thousands of shows. Nobody in my family has ever done that. I yeah. broke the evolutionary chain <laughs> because of my consciousness changing. And my point in this is that this is where we're like, it kind of, well, you know that the chain's been broken. I remember my dad before he passed away. I brought him to Michigan and he came in and he sat in the next room when I was doing my shows. And three hours later, he didn't say a word for three hours. Not a word. Yeah. He kept looking. I'm like, I'm 44 years old. I'm looking for my dad's approval, right? Yeah. And, uh, after three hours is over, I finished up. He goes, they pay you to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, they yeah. pay you to talk? I yeah. said, yeah, they pay you to talk. He goes, great idea. Yeah. You know, so I think we have these opportunities that come to us. So when I was mentioning about teaching last year a little bit, every now and I thought it was a great experience. I taught high school back in the early 90s, and I did some teaching last year in Michigan. And every now and again, I would cover a music class. And Phil, did you take music in high school? I uh I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. I I can't well, remember. You, you know, yeah. Yeah. You probably know. I mean, I took band in high school. I took right. band because all the blonde girls were in band. I couldn't play yeah, trumpet yeah, for nothing. Yeah. But I took yeah. it. Yeah. That was so, a good. That was a good move, though. Go ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sitting next to the best blonde. So, yeah. But I look at this and I say, we all pick up these instruments, then we put them down. You don't find. You don't go back to your twenty arena. Maybe two or three people. Out of the, you know the, the, the three hundred that took band ever play an instrument anymore, and we stop playing the music we were given, not yeah. just metaphorically but also spiritually. Yeah. And I think that I've done more talks and had more people come up and say, you know, I'm a reformed or a former name the religion, name the, the political party, name whatever, and it all comes from these opportunities that have been knocking on their door their entire life that they've ignored. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's nice to know. I mean, it's sort of a a two way street. What's so interesting about this? If you start if you start broadening your mind a little bit, which is there is an internal decision that needs to be made, but then the but then but then the quote unquote universe does provide the opportunity. I mean, it's this is this is the synchronicity thing here. I mean, I I coming to the conclusion that we are living in a very lucky time right now because we do have more freedom of thought than than ever. And this is something that, sure. that people tend to forget about. I mean, leaving aside the fact that there's still way too much poverty, homelessness, wars, mm-hmm. strife, etc., etc., we are living in a very free-minded society. It's one reason I could do a show like this, and people sure. could write sure. a book like. I mean, there's all sorts of people saying things. You know, it's 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 centered on free speech, but which is one of the founding principles of this country. But it's also uh, a signal or a or a or a uh, a sign that people are more open-minded, and so there is more opportunity. 
and you, and we are starting to realize that there is a lot of people realize it that there is more to life than maybe the nine to five drudgery of a job. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm very happy to be speaking with um, John St. Augustine, the noted uh, award-winning radio host who's now doing all sorts of other things, including giving talks and teaching, which we'll, which we'll um, get into a little bit. But we're talking about the uncommon life and some of its features. Now, you yourself, John, had this amazing uh, experience that I think you put upon yourself um, after you got married, and you took this long walk which is something that from Chicago to Michigan and back and a lot of us have probably thought about breaking out and doing something like that and I would say 99.9% of us never get around to doing it and so I, this had to be a life-changing event for you and I just like to for you to talk about you know what led you to do it uh, for the listener and then and then what what at the end of the day what it taught you because it's it's really an it's amazing it's an amazing event and I I, I want to see what we can what we can learn from your experience with that you know whenever I get asked a question about the walk it's 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 in capital letters in my brain yeah <laughs> uh, it really is it's uh it's something that at this point now that was uh, it's, it's, you know, that's 18 years ago, yeah. and uh, I was uh, a lot younger and thinner then. So, <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, I feel as, as years have gone by, and I, I get asked a question about the walk and reflections on it lessons, it was almost like, uh, I think that it was maybe offered to many people, but many people didn't accept. I feel that oftentimes that some of this stuff comes along, and, you know, they say uh, many are called, but few are chosen. I think we're all chosen to get some answer the call. We're too busy doing whatever. Right. And whatever reason, at this particular time in my life, I, I had found myself, and I grew up in Chicago. I loved the city. I was 37 years old. had a college degree. was doing all the right things, played golf with all the right people, and I was in a business deal that I thought was the one. And at the very same time, around that time, I was asked to give the commencement address at a small high school in Upper Michigan, little knowing that I'd ever lived there. You know, I'd never been past, like, Appleton, Wisconsin. So yeah. uh, this was all very foreign to me, and I drove up there to get the commencement address, and I was going to talk about success. And even though I had not been on the radio at, at Oprah Radio at that time, I knew Oprah, and I was going to talk about, you know, all these great high-minded things. And I got up to this little rural area to find out there were 27 kids graduating. Hmm. Now, when I went to high school, there was, you know, 1,200 graduates. And so it's quite a, yeah. quite a different thing. And, Long story short, I was really taken with the place. At the very same time, the business deal was falling apart. And, I, and I've come to understand, you know, the walk was not just the part of me stepping out on the road. The walk began long before I physically started. This has been coming to me in some way, shape, or form, I think, for a very long time. And that kind of kicked off things. And when I got back from that, that talk and all the stuff was going on with the business, in the very early morning hours... You know, when you're not quite asleep and you're not quite awake, you're right. going to turn over. I would have this this image in my mind, this flash, this this photograph, very clear, walking on the side of the road somewhere with a backpack on. The sun was setting on my left, had a stick in my hand, and that's all I knew. I would see this every day or so. And I didn't tell anybody for a while because I thought this is just some weird deal. And I, hmm. you know, and where I come from in Chicago, we don't pay attention to that stuff, Bill. Right. You know, we worry about the Cubs game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All that stuff. So. This was way out of my league, and, and 
then it got to the point that summer of 1996, no matter where I went, what I did, because that just the deal I pulled out of, uh, was sinking. No matter who I called, I could not find work. And, you know, I'm not used to that. I've worked my whole life. But you figure it out. You make your way. If they don't answer the door, you knock it down the whole nine yards. Right. And come to the end of August of 96, uh, the same people whose kid was in the graduating class in the school at Rapid River, uh, Native American people, they a little hotel up there. And uh, I've been talking to him, this gentleman, Bruce Hardwick, back and forth, this elder in the area. And I, I kept telling him what was going on. And he finally said, well, why don't you move up here? And I said, well, what the hell would I do up there? And he says, what the hell are you doing down there? At a point. Yeah. So long and short of it, we packed everything in storage, headed north uh, in, in the vans, headed north, and uh, put everything in storage there, put my kids went to school. And the next thing I know, here I'm living in the same two rooms I stayed in six to eight months earlier as Mr. Successful uh, with nothing. Yeah. And it wasn't more than two weeks we were staying there that I had that flash of a dream again. So I went to the man who... You know, in the motel, and again, I didn't know him real well. And I said, uh, you know, I don't know what the hell's going on here, but this is, you know, I think I'm losing my mind. He says, what if you're gaining it? I'm like, what do you what do you mean? And he says, you're being given a vision. You know, like, it happens every day on the Eisenhower. It <laughs> yeah. does it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, he says, you're, give, you're giving a choice to, to see what the mystery has for you. You can go back the way you came. And something clicked inside me, basically said, you know, I, I got to follow this. I don't even know what this is, but they have a big lodge on their property. And a big group of people came over, and I got up in front of all these people I barely knew, and they had a fire going. It was very, very spiritual and deep and interesting. And I said, I, I think I'm supposed to walk to Chicago, where I just came from. And uh, I don't know why I'm doing it. I don't have any provisions. I don't even, you know, nothing. I got nothing here. Right. I'm living in a motel. Everything's in storage. And I have a college degree, and this doesn't add up for me, and I'm 37. And uh, this gentleman, Dwayne Kennard, stood up on the other side of the fire, long hair down to the middle of his back, and he says, I'll go with you. Hmm. And I thought, you're crazy or yeah. not? You yeah. have a job. Yeah. And his wife's like, you're not going with him. So in short order, the synchronicity that you talked about, you, whatever was going on in the universal order of things started clicking, and another guy who we didn't know, Joe Johnson, he hears about it. He's got to go. Everything lines up. We ended up walking out uh, September 21st out of Rapid River, Michigan, heading towards Chicago. The first day we made it 19 miles, all this based on something I saw in my mind. And uh, couldn't even get out of bed the next day. And the long and short of it is we get to Chicago, I think it was about six weeks later. Uh, all the way down, we were in the news. It was in motels that were given to us and everything. We were on TV. It was a big deal. And Subway, the sandwich shop, started putting jars up saying, uh, walk for change and people put their change in there and then that money went to, to programs to help get kids out of the city none of which I could have ever imagined yeah. when I had these little snapshots we get to Chicago uh, our families meet us Dwayne and Joe go back home and I realized I have to walk back myself <laughs> and that's really where it started it was like a snake kind of shedding its skin and uh the walk on the way back was, was, was more than life-changing, and it was there on the walk back just side of, out of Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, that the most profound, there's been some really profound things in my life. This is probably one of the top three. I find myself walking by a little pond or lake outside of Oconomowoc, and I had to stop in my tracks, though, because I was standing in the same image that I had seen in my mind all those times months earlier. There I was, backpack on, stick in my hand, sun setting and left, and I couldn't 
effing believe it because yeah. that could happen to guys like me. Yeah. And it did. And that's and it was in that moment when I heard the words that changed my life said John go on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a, that's a, just a, it just a, an amazing story and I am always encouraged when when I'm going to I'm going to I don't know if you consider this to be an insult or a compliment, but when normal people have mm-hmm. have experiences like this, I mean, yep. okay, I'm from Cleveland, I live in Chicago, and I'm I tell people I'm as normal as they come. I happen to have some yep. different ideas, but but I'm I'm a very I'm very normal. And when normal people have experiences like this, to me, it says there's more to the world than meets the eye. And that's really what a lot of this is about. When you have, I mean, the whole idea of having a vision uh, or a, or a quasi dream, whatever we're calling it, and mm-hmm. then to have mm-hmm. that fulfilled, it's got to have a big effect. I mean, it's happened to me a couple times, and I always think, I always think back to. You know whether it's the Tao, or the these these fundamental, uh, basic uh, or foundational uh, spiritual books where they talk about getting in touch with the way. You know we're so used to this right, right. fancy, you know this fancy, uh, you know metaphysical dis- uh, terminology, but it really means getting in tune um, with with the quote unquote universe, and sometimes when it happens, it's it's an amazing thing and I, I i was struck i was struck by that uh because because you are i mean you you come from a very normal background and it's sure. something it's something that clearly you know that clearly you know affected your life and i i'm afraid that a lot of people just don't listen to the message and i i don't think i want to talk about this for a second because this is i think critical to to both of us here, you know, in trying to trying to help people and trying to help ourselves, frankly, because this is a challenge all of us have. Mm-hmm. But you know, there it's not always the person's fault for not listening. It, it's I think there's this thing, and you talk about you know whether it's fe- with fear, fear of the unknown. But but why why don't more people listen to that inner voice? I mean, that's sort of. It's a big well, I think that's a pretty, it's a very simple question with a very, very simple answer. Yeah. You know, that, that that little voice is not is, is in us, but it may not be us, meaning yeah. I'm sure it was my grandfather who said it, or even my father who was passed on by the time I took the walk, or anybody I was related to. It wasn't a passing radio station, it wasn't a, a jetliner, it wasn't a billboard. It came from a different part of us. I believe that that's the, the, the part of us that is uh, is connected to the, to the broadcast center of the universe, and that that little still small voice within us is has a very hard time getting past our egos, which is built to keep the voice out. It's built, yeah. built to keep us safe. Yeah. Look, no rational human, as you pointed out, would say, "Well, yeah, I'll take a thousand mile walk. I think it's a great idea. I'll put my family in a motel, put them up <laughs> against the wall." Yeah. You know, I mean, because that's that that's dangerous. In yeah. some, on some level, everybody I knew said, "I'm out of my mind." Yeah. And that's a good thing for me, not so good for them, makes them look at themselves. On the walk, I remember stopping my, my, my wife at the time, her grandmother was like, had her 80th birthday, and, you know, they drove down to the, to the event, and I come walking in looking like, you know, Grizzly Adams with a beard <laughs> and the whole thing, and they're like, are you out of your mind? Yeah. So the ego's job is to keep us away from that stuff, even though it may be the best thing ever happened to us, it's to keep us safe and out of harm's way, and anything that's outside of our constructed world 
that we grew up with from the age of, you know, when you're born and all this download happens to your 10, outside of that, that's a, that's, that's a harmful thing. That is, that's danger. So it, you're exactly right. It's nobody's fault per se, but the universe is knocking on the door all the time. And if you don't step out of that, you'll never know what that is. I believe that, you know, look, I didn't know Dwayne said I'm supposed to go with you or Joe Johnson or my father last time drove with me and the amazing experiences they had. All I knew is that this was knocking on my door. I answered. And, you know, listen, we're having this conversation today because I answered the call to take a walk. I would have never written a book. I never would have been on radio. All the things that followed from that yeah. came out of that. And, you know, it wasn't on the way down that it happened. It was three quarters of the way back. Yeah. I wrote a chapter in my second book called Every Moment Matters called The Last Hundred Miles because it took me 900 miles to walk off myself and got down to the last hundred where I could actually understand what the hell was going on. Yeah. And that's a lifetime of walking off in from thoughts and beliefs. Look, it's a simple belief is like this. You know this now. How long have you been in Chicago, Phil? Almost 30 years. 30. All right. Do you know that we don't put ketchup on our hot dogs here, right? Right, right. Why? Because Mike Ryko thought that that was not a good thing to do. That was that's my yeah, answer. Yeah. Well, before before Mike <laughs> before Mike said it, it turns out you know like a hundred years ago, the people that were in the mustard industry were losing money to the ketchup people. They put billboards up, and somehow this, this belief started. So yeah. you can come to Chicago, ask for ketchup on a hot dog, they'll pull you over the counter. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So so. When you look at the way we construct our belief systems, for no reason, really, it's just the way that it is. Until you step out of the way it is, you'll never know how it could be. And for me, to grow up in a city and and have all these barriers to overcome, you know, uh, I think the thing that has made me most successful on radio is because I'm not some know-it-all, smart-off, you know, more degrees than a thermometer guy. I'm a regular guy who worked my way up and did this, and all those common experiences have given me a very uncommon message in connecting with people from you know, all over the world. So, you know, you mentioned Socrates before, who's kind of like, you know, the first incarnation of Dr. Phil back in the day. <laughs> and you look at this, and you say these things, and you say, these were all people whose most difficult challenges gave birth to their genius. But had they not stepped out of their belief system to accept the fact that this is maybe who they could become, we would have been have deprived of all... Bucky, you know, Bucky Fuller's was going to kill himself. His wife had died. His daughter had died. He was literally standing at the Lake, Lake, uh, Lincoln Park Lagoon with one foot in the water, going to drown himself in 1934. And he had this voice come in and say, maybe there's more to do with your life than you think. Yeah. And because he listened to that, we all had the geodesic dome and you name it, this genius came forth. So the difficult times in our life, I think, are there for a very, very important purpose. It's not just to Prozac over them; it's to go through them and find out who you are. Yeah, that that's that's great. This is Philip Camella. This is conversations beyond science and religion. I'm very happy to be speaking with John Saint Augustine, the author of a number of books and also a noted talk show host himself. His book that we're looking at right now is called "Living an Uncommon Life." And John, I wanna I wanna circle back because on this issue of belief systems, because I think therein lies the big problem that we have. I mean, towards the end of the show, I want to ask you about what's right with America um, or culture, but but I think that this whole notion of belief systems is something that we don't pay enough attention to. And I'm happy to say though that the older you get and I'm speaking for myself, the older I've gotten, the more important it is 
to at least spend five minutes a day or one day a year to think for yourself. You, you sort of have to, and this is what I think sabbaticals are about. This is what uh, reading uh, all uh, self-help books are about or about going to seminars, taking nature walks, taking 100-mile walks, about or meditation. It's all the same. It, at some point, you've got to question the belief systems. And I always say the beliefs could be right, but at least at least come to your own conclusions that's, that they're right. If, if you are following in your father's footsteps, who was a architect, and you all, all of a sudden you're an apprentice, and you think, well, maybe I don't want to be an architect, well, think it through. Maybe you really do want to be an architect. And so there's nothing yeah. wrong with that, but it's just at some point, I think it's so important you know, to think for yourself. And of course, I bring those questions up to, you know, the religious worldview and the scientific worldview and all that, because I think that we we take so much on faith and we wind up sort of inserting, as you said earlier, inserting someone else's software into our little hardware brains. Sure. Um, so the the other the other topic that that you talk a lot about, and you know, your book was written a couple of years ago when 9/11 was was um, more front and center. But it's still—I don't think it's ever left uh, our consciousness uh, since it occurred. Um, and I—I'd like just to ask you what what you think, uh, how how you think we've changed because of 9/11, and you think that we're ever going to sort of get out of the that that experience or or ever ever um, remove the fear that was Im- implanted in us because of that. What what have, what are, what are you thinking about nine eleven these days? You know, it's it's a uh, there's a kinesiology term, uh, SAID, the word said, and it's specific adaptation to imposed demands. In kinesiology terms, which is the study of human movement, that's why someone who's a bodybuilder looks the way to do outside of taking drugs. That's why Michael Phelps looks the way he does, because his body's adapted to the man put on him. And so that's in the physical world, but also in the mental and spiritual world, we adapt to the demand placed on us. If we don't adapt to the demand placed on us, we fall apart. And I was on the air on 9-11. I, uh, I held the fort for about six hours, and, and uh, I kept thinking about when I left that day, it was the only time in my life I'd ever been afraid. I'd be a big yeah. guy, grew up in a city that bothers me. And I drove home that night, and my, my, I had adapted to the situation in a way that added an element of fear. Not faith, but fear. Got home that day, and like many people probably listening, I played with my kids a little bit longer and did some things. And, and, and that, that incident uh, is an opportunity in disguise for us to adapt to something in a way that is above the actual event itself. And we, I don't know that we've done that effectively. And when you, when you, when you have to be stimulated over and over again to get a result, it's like Pavlov's dog, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so we, I remember, I'm sure you do too, that, you know, there was about a, maybe a, a six week, maybe a little less than honeymoon. We were all singing Kumbaya together on the Congress steps, uh, you know, of, of the house. And, and uh, of course that gets watered down. And I think the universe is constantly mashing people together to get the best out of us. You know what happens when you squeeze an orange? You get orange juice and squeeze a tomato. You get tomato juice, you squeeze humans, all kind of crap comes out. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And the world is squeezing us all the time closer and closer together, and the crap's coming out, we have to deal with it. Yeah. So for me, when I think around 9-11, I think, and I had this conversation with Shell Richardson, who's in the book, 
about going back to sleep. And, and, you know, her biggest fear is that, you know, we will not be able to adapt to this event in a way that changes our behavior in the future, which then ensures more behavioral events like that. Right. And on one hand, she's actually correct because you and I each have a, we had a, there was an event that was common to all of us in the world at different levels, yet we all adapt and react to it differently depending on our involvement. And so you're not going to, you know, the people that perpetrated the, the event won't, don't see it as much as the victims and so on. So, so we have a long way to go on the evolutionary chain, I'm afraid. We don't do things that we used to do to each other, which is good, but we haven't figured out ways how to, how to, uh, you know, take care of ourselves and the planet as best we can. Cause we're not, we're not even there yet. I think, I think it was, um, I think Jean-Michel Cousteau said, uh, you know, we're, we're teenagers in the evolutionary cycle. We act like it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. I think that we have a long way to go on some of these things. So, you know, it's much like I was telling kids last year in class, and I do this even when I'm in a, doing a corporate talk, you know, if you're on your phone, they're not really phones anymore. You know, they're, they're lasers or whatever you want. They're, they're cameras with the ability to call people. Right. <laughs> but almost every cell phone these days, has a, a, an alarm on it. You know, we set our alarms to wake up in the morning, what have you. And the whole concept of the alarm is to wake you at a certain time so you can get about your your day. But only humans would come up with something you can hit called a snooze button, which puts yeah. you back to sleep. Yeah. So at the very same moment, as Bucky pointed out, great technology, wrong reason, we have the ability to wake up, and then we also have the option to go back to sleep. And just like 9-11, in many, many ways, We've gone back to sleep, so that ensures the fact that there'll be more wake-up calls. Will we stay awake after that? Highly doubtful. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 a really uh, one one of the things that has that has really been a um, I think a terrible outgrowth of nine eleven is just this permanent state of fear that we seem to be in. With the, for example, with the amber alerts and the orange alerts. Mm-hmm. And the homeland security, uh, and all the things you have to do to, to get on an airplane. I mean, we've right. sort of we've we've sort of made it into a permanent part of our psyche, and that is sure. not that is not a good thing. And I think that well, the look, okay, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, you know, and unfortunately, it's a conscious. There's not enough consciousness around that to realize that in mass. There's not enough critical mass to figure that out. Meaning. You know, it's like um, it's like a splinter. If the splinter goes into your body, it's going to take time to work itself out. And unfortunately for most people, they don't pull the splinter out. They just push it back in deeper and deeper. And, right. you know, as I said, we this is adaptive behavior. Something happened, we either adapt to it or we don't. And on one level, you can say, you know, I think they came out with this last year because I fly quite a bit. You know, if you're over a certain age, you don't have to take your shoes off anymore, meaning that obviously there's no terrorists that are over the age of 60. They all blow themselves up when they're third. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I look at these things and say these are adaptive behaviors based on events, and they do change the course of things. Yeah. You know, they just absolutely do. And so it takes, you know, I, I say this all the time when I go out and I say, you know, um, I've never seen Democrat or Republican on a headstone. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And all the cemeteries I've been, all the fields I've been, I've never seen it. We spend so much time in this diversionary stuff that by the time the end of our life comes, which is very, very short, we have missed most of it. Yeah. And in the same realm when it comes to the 9-11 thing, uh, you know, we all live in a fight or flight. We have that reptilian brainstem, and it, it, it twanged something in our reptilian brainstem that says, flight, we're afraid. 
yeah. and it becomes an anchor. And all you have to say is the word terrorist, yeah. and you know people are off to the races. So we're very much rudimentary beings on, on some levels. And what's hard is, you know, and I know I've listened to some of your shows, and I've you know Pam Grout is a friend of mine. You've had some great people on. These are people who woke up, but they didn't always wake up by choice. Sometimes by choice, often by chance. And then when you wake up, you, you realize a couple things. Most people are asleep. And yeah. the worst thing you can do to someone who's asleep is try to wake them up just makes them mad. Yeah. So either people have to come to their awakening on their own, listening to a show, reading a book, getting electrocuted, having cancer, something happens to wake us up and then we do it. But these big events like a wake-up call like 9-11, they are enough to shake us, but they're not enough to make us. You yeah. just break up. Yeah, well, yeah, well, un, you know, the media, of course, plays a role in this, and I, I, I don't know if anybody, sure. I don't know if anybody has ever done a study into uh, what part of our beliefs uh, that are imposed by the media or or have their source in the media, and then you could break it down to celebrities and sports athletes and rap artists, you know, what as opposed to uh, people like Socrates or or or, uh, or or Bucky Fuller, as you say, you know, what portion of our psyche? It, to me, it's it is it's obvious without any scientific test that the media, because it's so per- pervasive with between the mm-hmm. Internet and the cell phones and the constant access to 24 seven news, you know, the media plays such a role in this. And it's it's something that, you know, I struggle with because how do you change that messaging you know how do you get the media i mean that old line i think it's in your book you know if it bleeds it leads um sure you know how do you how do you change that i mean i this wasn't um i mean it's a very unfair question and and i'm just gonna i'm just raising it uh because it's come up in the conversation here but do you have any thoughts on it having worked in the media for so long i mean what do you what do we what do we do about changing the messaging i mean do we well, wait for you this way i worked i worked for years one of the the main thing when i started my show when they when they guys came to me and i you know had this declaration from the almighty i felt like i was flicked in the back of the head by god himself or herself uh that i was supposed to do radio and i wasn't supposed to just talk about politics and sports because at 37 living in the motel my views on either one of those was not going to help me get where i was going yeah so i wanted to talk about life and I called 17 radio stations, and they said, no one will ever listen to you. No one wants to hear that, because it's just the vibration that they run on. That's where it's been at. That's where it always will be. Yeah. And so I did. when I did get a chance to get on the air, they were all wrong. Right. Not because I'm so brilliant, but because that people are starving to death and don't even know it for something that has a commonsensical piece to it, like getting on the radio. I did five years afternoon drive, 3 to 6 p.m., after Rush Limbaugh had been on the air for three hours. You know what that's like? Yeah. <laughs> that's like dissection with a blunt spoon, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I would get on and say things like, I've never seen Democrat or Republican or even Independent on a headstone, and you're going to spend three hours of your life every day, 15 weeks a year on this? Yeah. So, you know, but, but coming into that, the point that I've learned is that there may be pieces here and there. The Internet is an opportunity that you do a show like this conversation you couldn't probably get this on regular terrestrial, even satellite radio, because, you know, all the pieces that go into that, they already set up how they want it to be, and that's the end of it. Uh, so you get your shots in when you can. But what I learned, after doing thousands of shows with thousands of guests, 
that for the most part, if not underlying theme of all of it was, is to wake people up. Right. Not only make them smell the coffee, but drink it, what a concept, make their own, was that it's not so much whether or not you or I can change the messaging, but that we ensure that the messaging doesn't change us for the worse. Yeah. No, because that's, yeah. that's really, in the end, is the only control factor in this thing is, you know, they're all, once Rush Love, I'm using him just as an example, uh, once he became popular, that means you have to have 400 more dislike him, that, that mentality. Yeah. So when, when those, when all the room is taken up on radio, for example, talk radio, and that's what you're going to pound to the ground, they go back to the same pie over and over again and force people to eat it. The people eating it have no idea. Listen, if you grew up in a garb in a dump, and I fed you garbage every day and you lived on it, you would eat it because that's all you do. But if somebody came on and said, hey, here's a nice salad, yeah. you, you would push it away, push it away, push it away, even though it's good for you. Yeah. So the messaging really will not change. I wish it would, but it's not going to. So what I do, and I think there's a few people that, uh, very few, unfortunately, in radio especially, that uh, bring out something that has value to it, that it can help people that day. Listen, you could be ticked off all you want at the political system, but you can't do a damn thing about it except for every two to four years. Yeah. And our lives, you can do something about that right now. I don't care how you vote. I don't care about that stuff. But you could do something about it. You know, everybody gets has these difficulties and challenges. So my big takeaway on this is that that's not going to change. I just want to make sure it doesn't change me. Because when that starts changing me, then I've become part of that. And I don't want any part of that. And I, and I think it is like everything else. Because depending on what level of the conscious ladder you're climbing on. Some people are way at the bottom and think, I just can't wait to watch Corey Povich pull out one more paternity test. It's the best thing in the world. And it's not their fault. That's just what they're fed on. Yeah. And then you go way to the top and say, I want to hear what the Dalai Lama has to say, or the Pope, or, or you, or, or whoever. It's all about whether or not you pull yourself up that, that, that conscious level, level ladder or not. And I believe and I know that life is always giving us the opportunity to go to the next rung or go back to the one we came from. And it's kind of an up and down deal. Yeah, that that is, uh, I think, the truth. I mean, when you say, when you say that, if you know, maybe we can change the message, but don't let the message change you. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is that is, that, is that that really is what we can do. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with John Augustine, a noted talk show host and author of a number of books, including Living an Uncommon Life. And we're talking about media messages, breaking down belief systems, and how we could listen to that inner voice. You know, one of the, one of the things that I, I think is, is so, you know, is so true here is that we are, is that we are given these opportunities to make up our own mind and to think for ourselves. One of the one of the tricks that I've done, because I read a lot of science books, and I also read a lot of other books, but I I do read a lot of science books, and I read a lot of books that I don't I don't agree with. I mean, I just don't mm-hmm. read books that that uh, sort of support or bolster my own my own theories. And for example, I read almost all of Richard Dawkins' books. He's a great writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he happens to be an atheist. He happens to be a diehard materialist, and I basically disagree with everything he says. But mm-hmm. but his work inspires me in a negative way. See, this is this is and and Rush Limbaugh would be the same thing. It, he it's sort of like if you know what the other side is saying, 
and it and it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right to be separate to to attack somebody because they are a member of a political party or a religious faith just because they are members of that group. Not not based not what they say, but what because they're a member of a group. It's it's not right, and it doesn't feel right. Uh, that that's an that's an inspiring uh, thing for me, and that's what I would say to people. I mean, listen, does it sound right? Does it feel right? Because I I think at the end of the day, uh, we have to find a this place of unity. We we have to find something we could agree upon. I mean, I think that ultimately is the the spiritual evolution. Um, that we need to go through and we we are I don't even know whether we're teenagers or not John I mean I think that we might even be below the teenage just, level yeah yeah I mean we we are you know we tend to think that because we have mastered the atomic nucleus and right. and exploding particles and landed a man on the moon uh, that we have mastered ourselves we are sure. we are i think we're just sort of fiddling around with technology as mm-hmm. you point out with buck with buck mr fuller's quote that we have just not used it for the the proper ends so in in your in your book and i i want to make sure we do this because you you inter, you extract lessons from what you say are 24 extraordinary people and they are really extraordinary and we don't have time to to go through all of them it's really it's really a um great diverse list but i'd like you to talk a little bit about what lessons you've distilled from from these these extraordinary people i mean there seems there there's certain common themes here and i think that the listeners would benefit from having you talk a little bit about what 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 you learned sort of in in sort of bullet fashion mm-hmm. from from talking to so many extraordinary people over your career you know somewhere in all of this I picked up the the ability <clears throat> to uh, to find things that are often overlooked uh, I don't know where that is maybe I was a great kid at egg hunting on Easter <laughs> when I was little I don't know but I, I've been able to um, to spend time with people, and some of the people in the book, very famous, some only their families ever heard of, and yet all of them, great teachers, uh, uh, great lessons in what they do, and and even more so that in who they are, and every one of them, in some way, shape, or form, gave me something that I may have had inside me, but was not fully realized yet, so... You know, I look at them and I realize on, you know, what level they played a role, you know, and I, the book starts out with a, a very famous guy who's been gone a long time, missing very much John Denver, who, when I was a kid, grew up in Chicago. It was a serendipitous time. I was, my first job was at Dunkin' Donuts on the Northwest side. And the girl there I had a crush on said, hey, you want to come listen to some records? And they were really records. They weren't CDs <laughs> even or cassettes at that point. Yeah. And I remember sitting on her porch and she put on an album. And there was this guy singing, and I'd never heard anybody sing like that. I'd never heard any messages like that. There was a song in particular that sticks with me to this day called Sweet Surrender. It talked about being lost and alone on some forgotten highway, uh, traveled by many, remembered by a few, looking for something I can believe in, looking for something I'd like to do with my life. Now, at 14, 
that's pretty heady stuff. I still right. think of that at 55. So the long and short of it was uh, John's voice was giving me a message in a way that I'd never heard before. And so, you know, I kind of took that to heart and, and it expanded my mind. And while a lot of my buddies were out getting stoned or whatever, listening to, you know, heavy metal, I was sitting at home, you know, as the captain of the football team in 1977, listening to this guy sing about him. And I thought I'd like to go there someday. And the long and short of it was, we eventually became friends years later through some very amazing serendipitous uh, events, uh, one of which I recount in the book about meeting John in Boston and going to talk to him and all this other stuff. But he said something to me in Boston that would show up later in life, and he was part of that. And without that particular event happening, had I not listened to all the signs and signals that put me in Boston in 1992, underneath the Wang Center after a concert, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And it, I can close my eyes and see him standing in front of me right now and put his hand on my shoulder after we talked. And he said, do you know that your voice matters? No one, no one had ever asked me that question in yeah, my life. Yeah. And I was, you know, <laughs> in my 30s. Yeah. What a horrible thing to not know that your voice matters. And because of that, and as you read the book, things have followed. He ended up speaking at the Windstar Foundation uh, Choices for the Human Family Symposium, and it set a course in my life. And so I learned from him that it's not whether or not people agree or disagree with you or not, because you think everybody's going to agree with you, you should just shut up, because they won't. You can't be a talk radio without becoming bulletproof, as yeah. I am. Right. But my voice matters. It matters to me. It matters to my children. It matters to the people that care about me. It matters to the world. And I have just as much a say as how things go with anybody else, whether they're the president or at the way at the other end. I have just as much a say. So to me, that's the first thing people need to hear. Your voice matters. Yeah, that's good. Matter. It matters. So that was a gift John gave me. One of the other ones that, uh, you know, really important, uh, later on, I worked with Oprah for a few years, and and we met again serendipitously. All these amazing things happened, and, and it put me on the air at Oprah Radio and Dr. Oz's producer and among other people. And watching how that all unfolded, even though it came to an end that I didn't expect, gave me the lesson of following the Yellow Brick Road. You know, we all saw the movie, but at various times in my life, I've been Dorothy without the pigtail. <laughs> uh, I've been the cowardly lion. I've been the scarecrow. I had brains I didn't know I had. I had courage I didn't know I had. I had a heart I didn't know I had. And all those things had to happen to bring those out in me. And so spending time with Oprah over the years, uh, watching her go through her paces and all that came about to put me on the air there and do all these amazing things, I had to call on that. I had to, I had to trust that the path was there, even though I couldn't see it. I had to believe that the munchkins would come out once I got moving. I had to put up with the Wicked Witch. There's been a few of them. Yeah. Sometimes we work for them. Sometimes <laughs> we're married. Sometimes we're in the car with them. Right. But I also had to have those other things that I didn't know I had, which was the courage, the heart, and the smarts. Here's where I was going. You mentioned Dorothy Hamill earlier. You know, this is a woman who used to stuff socks in the toes of her skates because they were too big when she skated on Little Binny Pond uh, where she grew up. And she's able, you know, she captured the world's hearts as America's sweetheart with that great haircut. But the fact of the matter is she was able to do things on a piece of metal the width of two pennies. Most people can't do that. Why? Yeah. Repetition over and over and over again. Oh, you know, people, there's an old story, and I'll, I'll try not to stay too long in this, but 
I'm always reminded when I think of Dorothy, uh, people would come up to her and say, God, I'd give anything to skate like you. And she would politely say, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> because people wouldn't be willing to put the thousands of hours in that she did. Yeah. And so that was her thing to do. And she said something to me that's very important. Balance, of course, is possible. But one of the other profound lessons from Dorothy Hamill was you can't get up until you quit falling. Yeah. And I think there's so many lessons in the falling as there is in the rising that we tend to, we all want to be successful. We all want to, well, an, a, a critical element of success is failure. So, yes. you know, falling down a jillion times on the ice allowed Dorothy Hamill to win Olympic gold. We skip over that stuff. Yeah. Wayne Dyer, a great buddy of mine, he talks about the truth as he knows it. And, you know, here's a guy that, you know, keeps expanding himself. He's got to be 75 now, I think, and keeps expanding himself. And he talks about the truth being inside of us. And, you know, when you go out and speak on the radio and do seminars and write books, all of that to me is to drive people into themselves so they can hear the little whisper, you know, in their lives. So, I mean, the book is filled with people who have crossed my path, Earl Hamner, uh, probably the most impactful, influential uh, guest I've ever had is Captain Jerry Coffey, seven years prisoner of war in Vietnam. And he basically came out and said, you want to really change your life? Forgive people. Forgiveness is an energy. He said, if I had not forgiven those men who did unbelievably horrible things to me, I'd still be in prison, and yeah. they'd still be my captors. Yeah. So the book goes through all of that. It really ends with uh, the deaths of three young people who most people would never know. They never read about them. They weren't famous. They didn't make a bunch of money, didn't invent anything. Uh, but they, they were nonetheless probably, if not my most important teachers, some of the right at the top. And it was a young woman named Chelsea Hewitt who died at the age of 16 in a car accident. I recount that in the book, how that happened. And her message to me and all people that knew her was, just treat people the way you want to be treated. Gee, we've never heard that before. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Tim Watchko was her boyfriend. He was in the car that night when they died. And Tim was my basketball coach for my son, who was very young at the time. We played basketball, and my son was the manager. And he used to say, do things 100% or don't do them at all. You don't have any time to waste. He was 17. He yeah. said this. Yeah. And then finally it was his coach, Jerry Collins, just a few months later. It was in October of, of 02 when he died in an accident, just, just literally months later, who said, I know why I'm here. I'm here to teach young men about life through basketball. So you have those three things. Still. You have treat people the way you want to be treated, give it 100% or don't waste your time, and figure out what you're doing here. I know people in therapy paying millions to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's the commonsensical thing that gives you an uncommon life. Well, and I think what it shows is that the extraordinary people, some of some of whom we would consider to be celebrities, are are mm -hmm. normal people that listen to the listen to a voice inside and followed it. I mean, there's there's something there's something here right. about following your passion. Uh, there's there's obviously hard work involved. Uh, mm -hmm. The the story about you know the uh, the message from Dorothy Hamill about um, you have to, you have to complete the fall before you begin the rise. Right. I mean that that yeah. is that's a new one on me, and I, I think that you know a lot of us want to live this this one hundred percent insulated life and never have a failure, <laughs> and and I yeah. it just is not possible. I mean I tell people one yeah. of the reasons why I'm halfway decent in what I do. Uh, is is because I've made so many mistakes, and and right. and so I've learned, and hopefully I've learned from them, and I still make mistakes, and it's a it's a lifelong learning process, as you know, and and so 
the, the and this issue about voice it is so important to me it's it's related to that to one of my favorite uh, sayings which is which is something along the lines of all it takes for evil to win out is for all the good people to do right. nothing and and that that includes not raising your hand in class not questioning the decisions mm-hmm. of our leaders not voting it, it, it's all all sorts of things um, and I, I think that there there's a there's a lot here that we could all benefit from now we have quickly come to the end here because uh, and I wanted I wanted to um, if, if we could do this real fast I want to ask you the sure. a, a question about about where we are at, in, in society at right now is America because I don't want to ask you about what's wrong with us right now mm-hmm. I want to ask you what do you think is right what if anything where, where do you where do you see hope in, in where we're at right now I'll tell you what that's the easy answer not what I would have probably given you until I had the experience I went back as I mentioned I did some substitute teaching last year in Michigan when I had time when I was up north and uh, that's where I found it you know for all the all the maligning of young people and you know all the weird stuff that goes on and the stuff that you we hear about there's a hope yeah um, my, my son and my daughter, they're in their early mid-20s, are far more advanced in their thinking than I was at that time. So I see the evolutionary piece there. They'll have more technology at their fingertips than any other group of humans have ever had in the time. And I think that there's enough brightness that they have watched. Even though they may not say it, but they have watched what we've done, and they're ready to undo those things. Yeah. And all, you know, it's not all. Of course not. You know, every kind of, you know, they're supposed to act a certain way, but that's where I found the hope. You know, whether it's... Um, Real quick, I, I, I was in front of you. Want to talk about fear? Go go teach second grade for three days. <laughs> yeah, you know that, that that'll do it. Yeah. And I remember going in there talking, and they did a story about whales, and I was talking about whales that whales have hip bones. They they do. And my question to the kids were, Do you think whales are getting rid of the hip bones over time as an evolutionary process, or gaining them? Did they walk on land once, or are they going to walk back up on land? And the lights in these kids' eyes. So for the next two days, all I got were stories and theories on what whales were up to. <laughs> now, you know, it was, and kids were drawing pictures of whales walking and talking. And I look at all this stuff and I say, you know, that's where the hope is. I, I don't yeah. put hope in technology. I put hope in how we use it. Yeah. I don't put hope in our, our systems. I don't put hope in the people in the systems. The systems aren't the problem. It's how we use it. Yeah. And so if we can, if we can see these kids and cultivate some of the, the brilliance they have and the brightness they have, it only comes down as you and I know this, especially in the profession you're in, the few do the work for the many. We don't need everybody on board. We just need a couple of good captains and a crew. The rest will take care of themselves. Yeah, that, I think I think that's I think that's really well put. I mean, the way the way I I like to frame it sometimes is that you know if you look at life like a clean stream flowing flowing um, along, and during life we contaminate it with all these mistaken yep. beliefs, opinions predispositions, prejudices, etc. But luckily, the stream is always being replenished with with young people, with young minds, yeah. and hopefully yeah. hopefully they come into the world with this open mind and and hold it together longer than many of us have held together. Well, uh, we went over a little bit here, but I wanted to touch upon that. John, I want to thank you so much for having the time to do this. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun um, in getting your your views on this and sharing with us many of your experiences uh, in your in your long career. Uh, it it was I hope educational for the listeners. I had a great time with it. Um, 
if people want to um, know a little bit more about you, what what should they do? A couple ways to do it: using technology to our advantage. You can go to my <laughs> website, of course, www.johnsaintaugustine.com, all one word. You can find me on Facebook uh, and every all those type of things. The books are on Amazon. You can get the books through my website. Uh, I've written three of them: Living an Uncommon Life, Every Moment Matters, and Notes from the North. So. Um, Enough of me out there to make uh, make my kids embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, once again, uh, you know, uh, thank you so much. And again, the 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 moral of this story is that living an uncommon life is something we should all strive for because it's also living the life that we choose. This is Philip Camella. This is uh, Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Tune in next week when Mark Anthony, the famous psychic lawyer, will be on and we'll go back and forth with what it means to be a psychic lawyer. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. John, once again, thanks a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.